when are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country and just say you now it's mandatory to get vaccinated fuck them fuck their freedom i want my freedom to live Look, I believe there should be a distinction between those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated. And people who are vaccinated should be able to enjoy greater freedom to travel and greater freedom from restrictions. It will be a requirement of work for all staff at all schools. If you do not have your second dose by the 29th of November, uh, you cannot attend school. We've made vaccinations free, safe and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. Hello, everyone. Okay, it looks like we need to talk about vaccines. This is a subject I was quite happy to go the rest of my life and never mention again. I did have quite an interest in it when I was a young man, newly learning that all is not what it seems in this world of ours. I read Neil Z. Miller's book, Vaccines, Are They Really Safe and Effective?, which had quite an impact on me. To take this study any further, however, would have required biomedical knowledge that is out of reach of probably 99.99% of the population, including the vast majority of doctors. You're either going to specialise in this area, or go nowhere. By contrast, anyone can apply a bit of elbow grease and gain a good sense of the world on a geopolitical level. So I opted more for that. Another reason I am happy to avoid this whole topic is the difficulty of having a rational conversation. The vaccination programme clearly touches something deep within. It holds meaning beyond whatever health benefits they promise. In my experience, discussions tend to descend into emotionally charged ranting in no time. People who, in any other area, would be the first to point out correlation doesn't prove causation, throw that insight right out of the window when it comes to vaccines. They act as if the entire 20th century was a controlled experiment on childhood diseases, with the only variable being inoculation. And so I would be happy to leave it there, spending the rest of my life pondering whether the world is fundamentally matter or mind, or thinking about the tension between anarchism and empire. However, events beyond all of our control have stepped in. With vaccine mandates in various forms coming for us all, the subject can no longer be ignored, even if ranting is provoked. Whilst a full understanding would require immeasurable scientific complexity, I do think there are core aspects that are so simple as to be self-evidently true. This is where I want to focus. To do so, I've recently been reading the book Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines and the Forgotten History by Dr. Susan Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic. Dr. Humphreys is a nephrologist, a kidney specialist. Her questioning of the vaccine program arises from her clinical experience. Rather than me telling you about it, I'll play some clips from an extensive series of interviews she gave to Bonnie Faulkner on the Guns and Butter radio show in 2015. 
Um, in 2009, I had been giving vaccines to my adult kidney patients. Um, I'd been giving them hepatitis B vaccine per dialysis protocol because their blood products are everywhere. You know, blood is always squirting and spilling. And so, hey, it seemed like a good idea to me to not get for people to get hepatitis B. I got my series of hepatitis B vaccines. Um, I was giving flu shots per dialysis protocol in 2009. And then uh, that was the year where there were two separate flu shots. And um, there was the H1N1 shot that was separate from the seasonal shot. So people, a lot of people basically got a double dose of the um, influenza vaccine that year. And I suspect that that's why that year is highlighted and why I saw the problems that I saw. And so um, there were a few patients that came into the hospital. They were started, um, you know, we, I work in a partnership with, with several other physicians who evaluated these people, worked them up, put them on dialysis. And when I came to round on them, they said to me, um, I was fine until I had that vaccine. And I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And so I looked up their kidney history and they had had normal kidneys in December of um, of 2000, and it was probably 2008 actually, and then by January 2009, they're sitting there on dialysis with a catheter in their neck, um, you know, shrugging, what happened to me? And all the notes in the medical chart said, uh, no cause determined for kidney failure. We look through the, you always look through medications first. As a nephrologist, you'll almost always find a, an appropriately prescribed drug that's shut the kidneys down, often temporarily, sometimes permanently. And uh, there was no, nothing to imply. You know, we asked about toxins. We did ultrasound of the kidneys. They, they weren't shrunken. They weren't blown up. And so everyone just kind of shrugged. There was no urine to even do a, really a test on because they, they weren't making urine. And um, by the time I rounded, I, I looked at it and I thought, well, the patient's telling me it was the vaccine. Um, let me look at the ingredients of, of the vaccine. Let, let me see if there's any case reports out there. And sure enough, you know, <laughs> there, there, you know, the light bulb went off and I saw what the ingredients were in, in the multi-dose flu shots, had mercury, there's formaldehyde, you know, there's a whole cocktail um, and then you look in the medical literature and there are just lots and lots of case reports of all kinds of um, kidney failure that happens within days or weeks of vaccination. And so when I brought that up to the administration, thinking that they would be interested, um, I was met with such um, disbelief and resistance. Um, I was met with questions like, well, what about smallpox and what about polio? And I looked at them and I said, well, what about smallpox and polio? We're talking about a flu shot right now. We're talking about a patient who said, I was fine until I had that shot. They became violently ill afterwards and here they are on dialysis. What about that? And they told me that I should do my own study, that they would support me if I did my own study looking at kidney failure rates in vaccinated people. And, and at that point, I said to them, look, I have a choice now. I can spend 10 years of my life trying to do a study that has statistical significance that would be retrospective the way you're describing it and that nobody would care about, it would be highly criticized. And I would need a huge number of people to look at this disease rate after vaccination. Or I can leave and I can continue my research and try to do what I can do to, um, to alert people of this humongous problem that we now have. And um, so I gave my notice. Um, it took about a year and a half to replace me and I stayed, I stayed until I was replaced and then I quietly left and have been researching the issues not only in the adult um, um, vaccination problems but childhood vaccination problems as well. Okay. Let's look at the core of Susan Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic's case. These are the aspects which I think are self-evidently true. The reason I found information critical of the vaccination program so shocking when I first encountered it was that it so totally conflicted with the societal message about vaccines passed on through the schooling system.
I'd actually done a course in the history of medicine where vaccines were trumpeted as the major reason we don't have a 19th century style 50% child mortality rate today. Measles, mumps, rubella and the like had all but disappeared because of vaccination. Other diseases, for which there were no vaccinations, such as scarlet fever, typhoid and cholera, had diminished in much the same way, but for other reasons. The obvious question did not occur to me until it was pointed out. Surely the factors that caused the non-vaccinatable group to decline would also affect the vaccinatable. So what was the impact of these factors? How would we pass this out? In reading Dissolving Illusions, I find, for example, by the time the whooping cough vaccine was introduced, the disease was only killing 1% of the numbers of people in England and Wales who used to die from it 50 years before. In the United States, the measles mortality rate had declined by more than 98% before the introduction of the vaccine. Let's hear from Dr. Humphreys as to why this was. I've written a book called Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History, which is co-authored with Roman Bistrionic. And what that book shows is the mortality rates from the common diseases that we're told that we were all saved from by vaccines. And the mortality rates for so many of them, and so, so for measles and for whooping cough, for instance, the mortality rates were, were down by over 98 or 99% um, in the USA and the UK using the commonly, most commonly used um, vital statistics that are available to the public. So Roman made these graphs um, just to depict the death rates and how the death rates were down before the vaccines, and that the vaccines actually had um, probably very little, I'm not going to say nothing, but almost minuscule. Um, help to do with that um, further declining in about 0.3% in mortality um, after the invention of the vaccines. So we sit there and we say, well, why? You know, what happened before vaccines for this to happen? And when you understand what happened with humanity, you know, humans create their own problems and then they come along and they solve them with sometimes um, unwise and um, unhealthy, deadly solutions. And that's exactly what happened with vaccination. There was a perceived need for vaccination. People were dying left, right, and center from smallpox, from, from measles, from whooping cough, very high mortality rates. But if you look at the conditions people were living in, if you look at what hospitals were like, you know, hospitals were places most people knew to avoid back then. Unfortunately, that wisdom has been lost. But most people knew to avoid them um, because their babies were getting eaten by rats when they went into a hospital. So it was a dangerous place to be. There were infectious disease hospitals, which was a really good idea back then because um, they separated the infectious diseases. And so we go through and talk about what happened, the land enclosure acts in England where people were living happily and healthfully out in the countryside and all of a sudden the landowners said, you can't live here anymore. Everybody was swept into the city and there wasn't the accommodations for them. And so they lived in, in squalor that you and I can't even imagine. Maybe if you go to the worst places in India now, you could imagine, but you and I, most, most people I should say, I don't want to assume anything, um, but most of us can't imagine the conditions that people were living and then um, it's simply illegal to live that way in the USA today. Um, child labor laws were horrible. Infant mortality rates were high, um, mostly because of doctors. And so um, children were living off of sausage made from sawdust and rotten meat. Um, it, was, it was really bad. They were drinking sewage. So once that 
part of society was improved. We saw a vast improvement in the death rate from diseases. We saw, in some cases, a decrease in the incidence of diseases. But in diseases like measles, we didn't really see much of a decline in incidence. Measles continued. And so the only thing the measles vaccine really did was it decreased the transmission of measles in the population. But it did something that really did us no favors, which was that it took measles out of the population that handles it best, the 2 to 15-year-olds, and it put it into the population at a lower rate that doesn't handle as well, which is the young babies and the older people. So that's kind of a, a really quick synopsis. I'll skip over the sections of the book dedicated to smallpox. They are extensive and I really would recommend reading them. I'm going to focus instead on Dr. Humphrey's research into the polio vaccine and how the rise of polio cases corresponded with an increase in toxins in the environment. When I started my investigation into polio, I knew nothing. I knew what every other doctor knows, which is that polio was eradicated, that Jonas Salk created one vaccine and Albert Sabin created the other, and that we no longer have it in America thanks to those vaccines. Well, what I found out was that poliomyelitis is a term that really just means inflammation of the gray matter of the spinal cord, which is just one area inside the spinal cord. And it doesn't really indicate what caused it. Now, there is a such thing as a polio virus, and I was really surprised when I went to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website and found out that if we infected 100 people with polio virus, that 95% of them would be completely asymptomatic, and that approximately 4% of them would maybe have some minor symptoms and a stiff neck, and that there might be some paralysis in less than 1%, and that the majority of that 1% that their paralysis would recover within 60 days. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So polio actually isn't the um, you know, killer virus that we all thought it was, especially when we look at these pictures of these poor kids in the iron lungs and in their casts. And then I learned more about this organization called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and the March of Dimes. And I found out that, you know, those nice little jars that you see at the countertop when you're shopping for the March of Dimes um, it really doesn't stem from um, what I believe is a benevolent mindset. Uh, the history of polio is very dark. It's, it's very strange. And it really began the beginning of the vaccine religion in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, because once the public um, supported the polio campaign, all vaccines kind of followed. And people now think, oh, wow, you know, you think of the polio vaccine. Even if you're anti-vaccination, you still want to give your kid the polio vaccine because you don't want them to get polio. And that's one of the reasons I went so deep into polio, because it was one of the vaccines that people still held on to. And I thought, well, let me see what really went on there with polio. And it turned out that poliomyelitis um, actually, we know today, and this is, this is not, you know, fringe quack, you know, out there kind of thinking. This is conventional medical literature supports the truth that there were many underlying causes of poliomyelitis. And it was actually the minority that were caused by a polio virus. 
And there are some people in the anti-vaccination campaign who criticize me very heavily and say that actually there's no such thing as a polio virus at all. Suzanne Humphreys, um, it is a toxin and your body is just trying to get rid of something. That I really don't believe. I've spent years now going through the virology and going through the genetics and the genetic code of, of what the, these viruses were and, and how they typed them and there's no way that I believe that's true, but I can tell you that there's still uh, some discord within people that are doubtful about vaccination, and there are people that disagree with me and are actually even more radical than I am, and will say that there's actually no such thing as a polio virus. Well, I don't believe that's true. I believe there's a such thing as a polio virus. I believe viruses are ubiquitous. They're all over the place. There are, th- there are probably a thousand different species populating your colon any one time of, of different kinds of viruses. They're part of the microbiome. Um, and they live benevolently, I should say, or they live harmlessly inside of us. And the polio virus is proof that these viruses can actually live harmlessly inside of us. So once again, the question has to be, what's wrong with the person that they couldn't tolerate having this virus come into them without becoming paralyzed? And the answers I got when I put all the pieces together were that there were toxins in the environment, there were chemicals in the, in the environment, there was DDT, which was basically sprinkled on sandwiches. I mean, it was sprayed on children at school. There, there are videos today of these events that happened in the 1950s. Military was sprayed up, down, and sideways in their pants, in their head, in their hats, and, and then they were sent off to battle. And we describe this in about a 70-page polio chapter in our book, and Even if you just look at arsenic, I mean, the story of arsenic is just so crazy. I mean, there was a drug called triparsamide in 1939 marketed by Merck through Rockefeller. And they were giving up to 100 injections of arsenic to people who had syphilis. And they were rubbing mercurials on their skin. They were smoking arsenic. You know, these these toxins were just everywhere. And and so these toxins alone, if you look at the... um, the pharmacology and the toxicology, you find that these toxins are capable of causing all the same symptoms as poliomyelitis, including the same histological changes in the spinal cord that poliovirus can cause. My take on it is that these chemicals trashed the bowel microbiome and we know that they're very toxic to the bowel. If you have arsenic poisoning, I've witnessed, uh, it was actually uh, a church poisoning up in Maine when I was, I was on call. And there were upwards of 20 people that came in after just a tiny bit of arsenic was swallowed in the coffee. These people were so violently sick. They were vomiting. They were having massive diarrhea. You know, the gastrointestinal system is very much disrupted by these toxins, as well as DDT. So when that happens, an otherwise benign enterovirus has the ability to get into your nervous system, get into your body, into your bloodstream and your nervous system and to, and to wreak havoc. And that's really what I believe, how this all kind of fits together. And so we had this, you know, media hype in the 1950s that there was this terrible virus going around paralyzing people. And even stranger to me was that there was an event um, in, in 1916 where there was an escape virus out of the Rockefeller labs in New York City. And the mortality rate from that escape virus was 25%. Well, you know, that set the stage for America to really embrace this anti-polio campaign and to support the March of Dimes, donating dimes, which added up to millions and millions of dollars to get this vaccine on, on track. The scientists that disagreed with how it was done were fired. And that's also very well documented in our book. 
So eventually they had a very agreeable scientific um, group who got together and, um, and produced this vaccine, which the first year that it was out, we know was a disaster. It paralyzed hundreds of people. And those are just the ones that were accepted and reported um, by the public health department. Another aspect we can take to be self-evidently true is around the redefinition of diseases. If what it means to have a disease is changed, in terms of length or severity of symptoms, for example, then obviously we can no longer plot a simple line graph showing how the disease has declined over time. This is also true if the numbers needed to constitute a pandemic are changed. Has this been the case? Dr. Humphrey's extensive focus on the polio vaccine demonstrated these factors were indeed at play. So the story of polio, you know, I could really just go on and on and on, but let me just fast forward now to we have the vaccine and all of a sudden they decided that the numbers weren't working out as well as they, as they should have been. So they changed the diagnostic criteria of polio and they changed it so that um, in 1955, the year that the mass vaccination initiation, two exams of any one patient, 60 days apart, had to show paralysis. Where in the past, you only had to have two exams within 24 hours. So what they did, because paralysis had actually increased 50% from 1957 to 1958 and 80% from 1958 to 1959, these new definitions helped to hide the fact that in the era of vaccination, they were seeing actually more paralysis. So they redefined polio. And in that redefining, they were basically reporting a new disease, which was paralytic poliomyelitis with a longer lasting paralysis. And so the decline in polio diagnosis would have happened whether they had a vaccine or not because they changed how they labeled something polio and who could actually call it polio. They also redefined what a polio epidemic was. It used to be that 20 out of 100,000 in the population was considered an epidemic, but they moved that up to 35 in 100,000 per year after the Salk vaccine was released. So between that and changing the length of paralysis from 24 hours to 60 days, and also any polio that occurred within 30 days of vaccination was not logged as vaccine-induced, but as pre-existing poliomyelitis. So this ignored the vaccine failures and vaccine-induced cases. So all of these manipulations eliminated a large portion of what was probably non-paralytic polio. Um, so that's just another part of the story that's, um, that's really interesting. And then if we go to 1958, there was a big polio epidemic in Michigan. And somebody decided to let's see uh, which, which of these cases that were labeled as poliomyelitis because they had paralysis and all the other symptoms actually manifested poliovirus either in their stool or in their blood. And what they found is they got 869 stool specimens and they found there was no virus in 401 of them. There was poliovirus in 292 and there were other viruses in the rest Really interesting, isn't it? I mean, basically just slightly over one quarter of all these cases actually had poliovirus. Then they looked at antibody changes in blood tests. And if you're infected with polio in the bloodstream, uh, you should see a rise in certain antibodies. So they looked at 191 of these patients and they found there was no antibody change in 123 of them, that there was evidence of poliovirus in 48 of them, 
and other viruses and the rest. So again, only around one quarter of these people actually had poliovirus. So to summarize, we had, we had problems with the diagnosis. We had problems that there were other things that were causing polio. And we had problems with relabeling later after the vaccine came out in order to elevate and support a vaccine that was actually causing more paralysis in that year than the wild virus caused. A further aspect we can examine without needing to delve into the depths of biomedical science is the suppression of alternative treatment methods. Dr. Humphreys does this by discussing the work of Sister Elizabeth Kenny, who pioneered the use of physical therapy for victims of what we would think of as polio. The other thing with Franklin Delano Roosevelt is that he was treated the way the, the children who developed the problems with the one short leg and one long leg, uh, he, was, he was immobilized. He was put into a cast and immobilized for a long period of time. And we now know today that that's actually the worst thing you can do to somebody who has acute flaccid paralysis, especially from a viral infection, and that just the immobilization itself makes any potential neurologic degeneration worse. In fact, if I were to take a healthy person's leg and immobilize it the way they did with poliovirus, especially a growing child, you're certainly going to have um, deformities later on. They were doing barbaric treatments that were reported by um, you know, medical physicians of the time, like tendon transplantation and uh, electric treatments. And they were really trying anything. And they were ignoring the one person who was having the most success at treating the paralysis. And that was a lady, a nurse named Elizabeth Kenny. And I talk a lot about her in the video and we wrote a lot about her in the book. And Elizabeth Kenny was actually um, really despised by the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And they pretended to support her, where in the meantime, they were really trying to undermine her. Uh, because if her techniques were adopted and poliomyelitis was reversible as, as readily as she was showing it could be, then where would this vaccine campaign be? And that might sound like a crazy conspiracy theory, but you can go ahead and read the history books yourself. You can read her autobiography. You can read about what doctors in Minnesota were saying about her and doctors all around the world, how they were comparing what she was able to do to what the orthopedic surgeons could do. And they first allowed her only to treat the leftovers that the orthopedic surgeons had already messed up really badly and they had pretty much given up on. And she would, would actually bring a lot of these kids back to some semblance of functionality. And then she was finally able to be able to treat fresh, freshly diagnosed poliomyelitis. And she was actually able to keep people out of iron lungs. And so her technique was actually very highly successful. And it's really a shame that it's been forgotten. And when you mention the third world today, what you will see is where this vaccine is being promoted, how they're treating poliomyelitis today is just the wrong way that they were treating it in the old days. They're not using Sister Elizabeth Kenny's methods. They're using the methods that didn't work before, which is immobilization and casting of these contracted limbs. Her analysis was completely different from what the orthopedics analysis was. Um, they were basically saying that everything was paralyzed. And she was saying, no, there was a real problem with spasm. I mean, you know how you have opposing muscles. Let's say, take your arm, you know, you have your bicep, which you can do a curl with. And then there are muscles on the other side, which pull your arm down again. Well, she was saying that the one set of those muscles was in spasm. And it wasn't a problem of paralysis. It was a problem of spasm. And so she was treating with hot woolen packs. And in that treatment, she was not only taking care of a lot of the pain in, in these kids, but the spasm was going down. And she was also very much into nutrition, which is really important when treating 
poliomyelitis. And then afterwards, she was probably one of the very early physical therapists. The woman was a genius. I mean, reading her story, she first rehabilitated her brother when he was a, a little weakling and he became one of the strongest men in the army. But um, you know, she was an inventor and she had a very good mechanical mind. And so she also developed techniques to basically re-educate the brain muscle connection after this problem happened so that kids that were lying there thinking they couldn't move their muscles. It was actually because there was some sort of a disconnect that happened between the brain and the muscle. And she basically started doing physical therapy and it was very successful. She got a lot of people back on their feet 100% that the orthopedic surgeons would have completely had them be cripples for the rest of their lives. Returning to my opening comments regarding the difficulty of having a rational conversation about vaccination, I do wonder, why is this? What is it about vaccines that provokes such strong feelings? What I'm about to say has nothing to do with the work of Dr Humphreys. These are thoughts I've been harbouring for the past 20 years since first encountering the ferocity of this debate. In some ways, this ferocity can be rationalised away, justified. Parents who refuse to have their children vaccinated are endangering not only their own lives, but the lives of other children. If this is the case, why shouldn't society scorn them in the harshest possible terms? The rage doesn't carry over, however, to parents who send their children to school with sugary snacks, damaging both their health and encouraging others into bad eating habits. I'm sure we could come up with lots of examples of comparable risks not causing the same offence. It seems something deeper is going on with vaccines. It's almost as if, irrespective of any medical benefits, vaccines also possess another role. They have come to take on some religious function in our post-Christian society, like a baptism or confirmation into a particular worldview, a church of pseudo-scientific materialism. To accept the vaccine is to accept entrance into this church. To reject it is to reject the authority of its teachings and priesthood. How arrogant! Acceptance of the vaccine implies intelligence you understand statistics, whereas rejection of it, being anti-vax, means to be swayed by feelings over facts, to reject science itself in favour of what some celebrity is saying. That used to be Jenny McCarthy, now it seems Nicki Minaj is picking up the mantle. To be outside the church is to be shamed, and that's what I think we are seeing an inability to hold rational, fact-based discussions due to people suffering shame reactions. I don't want to be associated with being anti-vax. We could additionally say that being knee-jerk anti-vax, in a way that disregards evidence, is also granting a mythological status to vaccines, seeing them as more than medicine. Now they represent a worldview we are proudly rejecting in favour of a vision of being in harmony with nature. It seems to me with this level of mythology clouding our minds, there's no way we can step outside to objectively engage in this discussion. Maybe we all need to examine our feelings about vaccines before attempting. And with mandates coming down, we do need to attempt. I'll leave the final word on that to Dr. Humphreys. Mandatory vaccination means abolishing any hope of informed consent, right? So you can rip up your right to think, 
to choose, and to act as you wish with regard to the medical system. This mentality is already enshrined in concrete when it comes to treatment of children with cancer drugs against parents' wishes. We see this happen all the time. Even a parent who doesn't want an unwarranted antibiotic or even a fever-reducing agent is often treated like a criminal by the medical system. Mandatory vaccination is the logical product of a legalistic, paternalistic mindset which says that everyone who doesn't think like the conditioned lemmings should be forced to comply. If they won't, they should either be put under house arrest, publicly shamed, or hung, drawn in quarters. It's taking on the same sorts of dimension as the Spanish Inquisition. Who would be surprised if the government instituted some sort of system whereby pro-vaccine parents would now rat on parents who didn't vaccinate for a financial reward? I wouldn't be surprised about that. It signals a total failure on the part of the medical profession to first acknowledge that as a system, they cause more annual deaths and disabilities than even the worst infectious diseases ever do, and that people should have the right to decide whether to engage in that system or not. That shouldn't just apply to vaccines, it should apply across the board. So in my opinion, compulsion and mandatory vaccination is one step away from slavery. Thanks for listening, and special thanks to the very excellent Guns and Butter podcast for use of their interviews. I'll link to them and the book Dissolving Illusions below.